Hi, everyone. This is Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Before we get started with this episode of the podcast, I just want to tell you about a new project I'm developing called MedPrep to Go. The idea here is to create a free online and audio USMLE question bank for both Step 1 and Step 2, with the overall goal of reducing the cost of medical education and giving you time back in your day, just like we're doing with this podcast. It's still early in the process, and we're adding a lot of questions and new episodes of the podcast regularly, but I'd love to have you go check it out at medpreptogo.com. And if you're interested in getting involved in developing questions for this question bank and getting some mentoring directly from me on how to develop questions, I'd love to have you involved. You can email me at ted.medpreptogo at gmail.com or you can go over to medpreptogo.com and sign up through the website. So thanks so much for uh, listening and enjoy the podcast. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. Here's our question dissection today, generously provided by Elsevier from their Clinical Key Student product. Okay, let's get into a question breakdown for this chapter. So here's the vignette. A 35-year-old man with a history of schizophrenia is brought to the emergency department for altered mental status. On arrival, he is obtunded and sweating profusely. Vital signs are temperature of 41.1 degrees Celsius or 106 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is fluctuating. The last two measurements were 190 over 110 millimeters of mercury and 140 over 60 millimeters of mercury. And his heart rate is 125 beats per minute and irregular. Physical examination reveals that the patient has severe skeletal muscle rigidity. His limbs can be passively moved, but remain in their new position. Which of the following medications is most likely responsible for this patient's condition? Is it A, chlorpromazine, B, dantrolene, C, fluoxetine, D, lithium, or E, phenobarbital? So looking at this case, we see a patient who has a history of schizophrenia. So that may be the first tip-off about medications that the patient might be taking. He has altered mental status, is febrile with quite a high temperature, is tachycardic, and has variable blood pressure, and also on exam is found to have muscle rigidity. So this spectrum of findings describes neuroleptic malignant syndrome. And so then the question is, which of these medications can be associated with neuroleptic malignant syndrome, or NMS? And we know that NMS is often due to the use of antipsychotic agents like haloperidol or chlorpromazine. So that would make choice A the correct one, chlorpromazine. So let's go through each of these options here. So with chlorpromazine, which is the correct answer, uh, we know that NMS is characterized by hyperthermia, autonomic dysfunction, altered mental status, and muscle rigidity. 
And as I just said, it's most often due to the use of antipsychotic agents. It can also be secondary to antiemetics such as metoclopramide or promethazine. Management involves discontinuing the causative agent and initiating supportive care to prevent or manage complications, which in some cases can actually be fatal. Uh, Medications such as dantrolene, bromocryptine, and amantadine may also be used, but their efficacy is unclear. So let's go through the rest of these answer choices. So dantrolene is not going to be a correct choice because it's actually used in the treatment of neuroleptic malignant syndrome, as I just mentioned. Fluoxetine is an SSRI, which can cause serotonin syndrome, which can actually present similarly to NMS, but it's characterized by hyperreflexia clonus, and SSRIs usually do not cause rigidity. Lithium can increase the risk of NMS when used in conjunction with antipsychotics, but alone it does not typically cause NMS. And then finally, with phenobarbital, barbiturates are not associated with NMS. An overdose can cause coma and death due to respiratory depression, but doesn't cause hyperthermia or rigidity. So the main learning point here is that neuroleptic malignant syndrome is characterized by hyperthermia, autonomic dysfunction, altered mental status, and muscle rigidity. It's caused by various antipsychotics, such as chlorpromazine and haloperidol, as well as antiemetics. And with that, we'll get back to our show. This is Chapter 9, the Emergency Medicine Chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th Edition. Question 1. What are the three causes of burns? How should all burns be managed initially? Burns may be thermal, chemical, or electrical. Initial management of all burns includes lots of intravenous fluids. Remember the Parkland formula. First choice fluid is lactated ringer solution, and backup is normal saline. Remove all clothes and other smoldering items from the body. Give copious irrigation to chemical burns. And of course, remember the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. You should have a low threshold for intubation. In the setting of burns related to a fire, give 100% oxygen until significant carboxyhemoglobin from carbon monoxide inhalation is ruled out. Question 2. What are the most important sequelae of electrical burns? Because most of the tissue destruction due to electrical burns is internal, sequelae include muscle necrosis, rhabdomyolysis, compartment syndrome, dislocations, think posterior shoulder dislocation, myoglobinuria, acidosis, and renal failure. Use large amounts of intravenous hydration to prevent renal shutdown. The immediate life-threatening risk with electricity exposure and burns, including lightning and a child who puts his or her finger in an electrical outlet, is cardiac arrhythmias. Get an electrocardiogram and watch for seizures. Question 3. How are chemical burns managed? Which is worse, acid or alkali burns? All chemical burns should be treated with copious irrigation from the nearest source, such as tap water, because the sooner you dilute the chemical, the less damage will be done. Alkali burns cause liquefactive necrosis and are worse than acidic burns, which can cause coagulative necrosis. Eschar formation prevents deeper substance penetration. Question 4. What is burned skin prone to develop? 
Burned skin is much more prone to infection, especially by Staph aureus or Pseudomonas. With pseudomonal infection, look for a fruity smell and or blue-green appearance. Prophylactic antibiotics are only given topically. Debridement is very important in preventing infection. Give a tetanus booster to all burn patients unless they have recently received one within the past five years. Question 5. How is burn severity classified? Describe the management of each class. Burn depth terminology no longer includes the use of first, second, and third degree burns. Burn severity is now classified as superficial, superficial partial thickness, deep partial thickness, and full thickness burns. Superficial burns are erythematous without blister formation, involve only the epidermis, and pain is localized. Superficial partial thickness burns are painful, warm, and moist with blister formation and involve the epidermis and superficial papillary dermis. Deep partial thickness burns reveal skin that is mottled, waxy, and white in appearance with ruptured blisters. Pain sensation is absent, but pressure sensation is intact. Full thickness burns involve both the epidermis and dermis, have a white to gray, leathery, charred, or translucent appearance, and do not blanch with pressure. There is no pinprick sensation. Question 6. Define hypothermia. How is it managed? What are the complications? Hypothermia is defined as a body temperature less than 95 degrees Fahrenheit, usually accompanied by mental status changes and generalized neurologic deficits. If the patient is conscious, you can rewarm the patient slowly with blankets, radiant heat, or a bear hugger. If the patient is unconscious, consider gastric and bladder lavage with warm water, as well as warm intravenous fluids. Monitor the EKG for arrhythmias, which are common in hypothermic patients. The most common arrhythmia is sinus bradycardia. This can lead to atrial fibrillation, ventricular fibrillation, and asystole. You may also rarely see the classic J-wave, a small positive deflection following the QRS complex. Also monitor electrolytes, renal function, and acid-base status. Consider checking thyroid function to rule out myxedema coma. Question 7. Distinguish between frost nip and frost bite. How are they managed? Frost nip, a mild form of cold injury, occurs when there is partial skin freezing resulting in cold and painful skin. In frostbite, a more severe form of cold injury, the skin is cold and numb. Treat both with analgesia, warming of the affected areas using warm water, local wound care, tetanus vaccination, and generalized warming such as with blankets. Question 8. True or false? You should not give up resuscitation efforts until the patient is fully warmed in the setting of hypothermic cardiac arrest. True. An old saying in medicine claims that the patient is not considered dead until warm and dead. Hypothermia can slow body function to a remarkable degree, and there are case reports of resuscitation hours after initial temps in the field once the body was warmed. Question 9. Define hyperthermia. What causes it? How is it managed? Hyperthermia is defined as a body temperature greater than 104 degrees Fahrenheit. The three primary causes are infectious, medications, and heat stroke. If heat stroke is a cause, look for a history of prolonged heat exposure 
and a high temperature over 104 degrees Fahrenheit without clues to other culprits. Treat with immediate cooling, such as with wet blankets, ice, and cold water, to a goal temperature of about 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Avoid overshooting and causing hypothermia. The immediate threats to life are convulsions, which are treated with diazepam, and cardiovascular collapse. Always rule out infection, endocrine abnormalities, and medications, especially those with anticholinergic activity such as antihistamines, antipsychotics, and antidepressants as the cause. Question 10. What are the two classic examples of hyperthermia due to medication? Malignant hyperthermia is an idiosyncratic, genetically related reaction to general anesthesia, usually caused by succinylcholine or halothane exposure leading to extreme muscular contraction. Treat with dantrolene. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome is thought to be related to malignant hyperthermia and is an idiosyncratic, genetically related reaction to an antipsychotic. The classic tetrad includes altered mental status, lead pipe rigidity, hyperthermia, and autonomic instability. Look for extremely high levels of creatine phosphokinase and mental status changes in a patient taking antipsychotics. The first step is to stop the medication. The second step is supportive treatment, especially with lots of intravenous fluids to prevent renal shutdown due to rhabdomyolysis. The third step, if necessary, is to treat with dantrolene. Drug fevers are idiosyncratic reactions to a medication that was typically started within the past week. They rarely cause fever above 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Question 11. How are patients managed after a near-drowning episode? Some, not all, believe that fresh water is worse than salt water because fresh water, if aspirated, can cause hypervolemia, electrolyte disturbances, and hemolysis. Intubate patients after a near-drowning episode if they are unconscious and monitor arterial blood gases if they are conscious. Patients who drown in cold water often do better than those who drown in warm water because of decreased metabolic needs. Death is usually due to hypoxia and or cardiac arrest. Remember to look for head or neck trauma. Consider causes of why the near-drowning occurred and think of intoxication, seizure, syncope, and suicide attempt. Question 12. What are toxidromes? Describe the toxidromes associated with cholinergic crisis, anticholinergic crisis, sympathomimetics, and opiates. Toxidromes are syndromes caused by dangerously high levels of toxic substances in the body. Cholinergic crisis, think organophosphates or insecticides, classically presents with sludge, excessive salivation, lacrimation, urination, diaphoresis, gastrointestinal upset, and emesis. Also look for pinpoint pupils and decreased heart rate. Anticholinergic crisis think TCA overdose, presents with a patient who is blind as a bat, mydriasis, hot as a hare, temperature dysregulation, mad as a hatter, CNS disturbances, dry as a bone, decreased secretion of bodily fluids, full as a flask, urinary retention, and red as a beet, flushing. Also look for increased heart rate. Sympathomimetics, Think cocaine toxicity can cause hypertension, tachycardia, increased activity, anxiety, dilated pupils, diaphoresis, and possibly altered mental status.
opiates, think heroin overdose, cause coma, pinpoint pupils, and respiratory depression. Also look for bradycardia and hypotension. Question 13. Name the antidote for each of the poisonings or overdoses listed on the left side of the table. So, for acetaminophen, the antidote is acetylcysteine. For benzodiazepines, give flumazenil. For beta blockers, give glucagon. For carbon monoxide, give oxygen or hyperbaric oxygen if it's severe. For cholinesterase inhibitors, give atropine or praleodoxime. For copper or gold, give penicillamine. For digoxin, normalize potassium and other electrolytes, and you can also give digoxin antibodies. For iron, give deferoxamine. For lead, give editate or succimer. For methanol or ethylene glycol, give fomepazole or sometimes ethanol. For muscarinic receptor blockers, give physostigmine. For opioids, give naloxone. For quinidine or tricyclic antidepressants, give sodium bicarbonate, which is cardioprotective. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3 We actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast, so I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available, and even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies, so please do check it out.